Welcome to Small Biz Brainiac, providing employer intelligence that helps you navigate the regulatory landscape and keep you on course running the business you love. Here's your host, Thomas Rock Lindsay. Welcome to Small Biz Brainiac, your source for employer intelligence in just seven minutes every Tuesday and Thursday. I am your ally, your employer brainiac, Thomas Rock Lindsay, and I'm here to help you thrive as an employer. Do you use independent contractors? Do you know about the three categories of IRS common law rules used to determine a worker's status? Today we will learn about the IRS 11-point test, and if you think you might have an issue, you'll want to hear about Section 530 Relief. Let's rock this. But before we dive in, I have to make the following disclaimer. This is not legal advice. I am not a lawyer, I don't play one on TV, and I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn last night. Now, do you remember the examples from Episode 3 of employers who have been and are currently being sued? This isn't an issue you want to mess around with. If you use independent contractors, you need to take some time to slap the facts of your situation up against the 11-point test outlined in the common law rules. The quick explanation is that if you have the right to control or direct only the result of the work and not how it will be done or what will be done, then you have an independent contractor relationship. If you're thinking that's pretty subjective, well, it is. In fact, in an IRS video on worker classification, they say there's no magic to the set number of factors that make the worker an employee and no one factor stands alone in making this determination. Also, factors that are relevant in one situation may not be relevant in another. Pretty awesome, right? The IRS uses an 11-point test that focuses on three categories, behavioral control, financial control, and the relationship between you and the worker. These are known as the common law rules, and it's how the IRS is going to make their determination. You'll need to scrutinize the worker relationship by considering all the evidence. First, let's talk about behavioral control. Now, this focuses on the degree of your rights to direct and control what work is accomplished and how the work will be done. What instructions do you give the worker? You tell employees how and when and where to work, so if you're telling an independent contractor the same things, then chances are they're an employee too. Ask yourself these questions. Do I tell the worker when and where to do the work? what tools or equipment to use, what workers to hire to assist them, where to purchase supplies and services, what work must be performed by specific individuals, and what order or sequence to follow to get the job done. Even if your answers are no, you may still have the right to control, so ask yourself those questions again, but in a different way, saying, do I have the right to tell them when and where to do the work? Do I have the right to tell them what tools or equipment to use, and so on. Now, a worker is an employee when you have the right to direct and control the way they do the work, even if you don't actually exercise that right. Next, what training do you give them? If you're training an independent contractor, that's not a good sign. They need to use their own methods. Now, financial control. This is about whether or not there's a right to direct and control the business part of the work. Here are the test questions. To what extent does the worker have unreimbursed business expenses? Independent contractors typically have expenses that you don't reimburse them for. They usually have fixed costs, regardless of whether they're doing work for you or for someone else. 
does the worker have a significant investment in their work? In other words, do they have an office or a shop? Do they own tools, equipment, or software? There is not an exact dollar test for this, and the worker doesn't necessarily have to have a significant investment, but it's a good thing if they do. Does the worker have other customers? So do they advertise their services? Are they available to work on other projects? How do you pay the worker? An employee gets a regular wage, whereas an independent contractor is paid a flat fee or on a time and materials basis. And finally, can the worker realize a profit or a loss? Now let's examine the type of relationship. Do you have a written contract describing the relationship? Or is it just a verbal agreement or are only the payment terms written? If so, you need to get a full-fledged agreement in place. Do you provide the worker with employee-type benefits like insurance, a pension plan, or vacation and sick pay? If you do, that's probably a deal killer. Now, how long will the relationship last? Will it be indefinite or for a specific project period? Obviously, indefinite says they're more likely an employee. Are the worker services a key aspect of your regular business? If so, you're probably either directing or controlling their activities. Well, that's the test. Clear as mud, right? Well, don't worry. The IRS is here to help. Now, if you want them to make the determination for you, you can fill out Form SS8 and send it in, and I'm sure they'll get back to you promptly. If you think you might have an issue, I urge you to contact an employment attorney and ask them to explain the Voluntary Classification Settlement Program, or Section 530 of the Revenue Act. Now, that'll provide you an opportunity to reclassify your workers and to gain some partial relief from past due federal employment taxes. Now, if you're ever audited by the IRS for compliance, the examiner must explore the applicability of Section 530, even if you don't bring it up. However, there are certain factors that have to be met in order for you to qualify, and you can read more about those in the show notes by clicking on the Section 530 relief link. We need to demand the right to decide for ourselves what type of employment relationship we wish to enter into without all these regulations. We shouldn't have to jump through hoops like circus animals, and at the very least, workers should have the freedom to choose between the two arrangements. Government's basically stolen that ability from us, and they've created a huge bureaucratic apparatus to oppress productivity and increase the cost of labor through compliance expenses, all under the premise that we're too dumb and irresponsible to know what's best for us. But I say freedom empowers the individual. You're listening to Small Biz Brainiac. For more strategies and guidance on thriving as an employer, sign up for the weekly brainwave email at smallbizbrainiac.com. Well, there you have it. Let's recap. A worker is an employee when you have the right to direct and control the way they do the work, even if you don't actually exercise that right. If you use an independent contractor, you need to look at the common law rules and take the 11-point test. If there is any question about whether or not you're paying employees as independent contractors, call an an employment law attorney and discuss your situation with them and look at the possibility of Section 530 relief. Address the issue proactively rather than wait for an employee, the IRS, or some other government agency to come knocking. Now in the next episode of Small Biz Brainiac, we kick off a six-part series on federal payroll taxes. And in part one, you'll learn how the IRS uses you to hide the true amount of taxes that your employees pay and much more. Please check out smallbizbrainiac.com for show notes 
and links to resources from this show. And remember, if you have any questions about employer-related issues, email me from the website and I'll respond to you in 12 hours or less. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Small Biz Brainiac. To get your questions answered by Thomas directly, visit smallbizbrainiac.com. And for more employer intelligence, be sure to join us again here on Small Biz Brainiac. Small Biz Brainiac.